Hey everybody and welcome to this Vassals of Kingsgrave episode covering HBO's series The Plot Against America based on the Philip Roth novel of the same name released in 2004. On this episode we will clearly spoil anything from the book or the show. My name is Bina007 and I will be your host today and I am joined by Adam. Hey this is Adam John Snow on the forums. By Jock. Hello Mano Jock here on the forums. By Greg. Hello, this is Greg, Claudius the Fool on the forums. By Abby. Hi, this is Abby, Daisy Mormont on the forums. And we may or may not be joined by Vali Movali later on in the podcast. So let's start off in the time-honoured fashion by giving a rating, either on the show or the book or both, a lemon cake <clears> rating. I think we should do hollow bread rating instead of lemon cake rating, or uh, maybe gefilte <laughs> fish rating. Absolutely. So, it's it? okay. Whatever. I'm half Whatever. Jewish. Appropriate. <laughs> Although in the they make a big deal in the book that they don't keep a kosher house, right? So no, I know. when he goes Neither off to of eat, those things are kosher. Yeah, also true. There was a lot of good bakery scenes in this TV yeah. show. And they oh, like, when they like, go to the Jewish patisserie, yeah, and they yeah. just like yeah. that like really awful Abe Steinem just corners the deli for all the good sweets, and you're just like, oh, okay. So what are we doing, gefilte fish, or can we do something bakery? Well, gefilte fish is gross, so like, let's not. Once do a year, fish. it's okay. <laughs> Lindbergh babies, I don't know. Hey, hey, Vali yeah. Movali, welcome. <laughs> Sorry, I was late, even though you guys pushed it back for me. That's okay. Okay, Adam, how many Lindbergh babies out of five do you give the series and/or book if you have read it? Uh, I like kind of skimmed like some notes on the book. I haven't actually read the book, but I I did watch the show. I give it like a I don't know four out of five. I think um, the pandemic mindset obviously wasn't I don't know probably might change my viewpoint. <laughs> but um, I watched it uh, I don't know maybe sometime last week, ten days ago, or something like that. And I know I'd seen the the previews for a while on HBO, and it looked interesting. And I was like I don't know if I want to get into this or not. I, I didn't know really know enough about it, and I was just looking for something and. I, I watched the first episode and I was like, oh, okay, so this is what's going on. Uh, and then I think I watched them all in, you know, I don't know, however many hours it takes to watch all the episodes. Because <laughs> um, uh, I've been doing overnights at work, so like, yeah. sitting around dead uh, binging stuff. I don't know. I, it definitely was uh, anxiety-inducing a little bit because most of the time in my head is like, is this all it takes? Is this all it taken? Really? Really? <laughs> like probably way, way more than um, I would have normally given everything that's going on. So. Yeah. How about you, Jock? How many Lindbergh babies out of five would you give this? Um, I think three out of five. Um, my problems with him were sort of um, intrinsic to it, um, where it was slow at points, but just because it's a self-insert where the self-insert is a child. Yeah, so. and I think that's legitimate. And I think a lot of um, people reading the book, which is far more... Um, anchored to the little boy would have had that same criticism um how about you uh greg what do you make of book and show uh i enjoyed the show i'd probably overall give it a four uh the book i had problems with because i read it when it first came out and i was in the middle of just being like obsessed with alternate history i was reading harry turtle dove and robert conroy and all these like i was reading nothing but alternate history for a huge you know well a couple years and when this came out i was like oh like a real author is like a literary author is is getting his foot in like sci-fi alternate history and 
I thought he kind of like uh, didn't stick the landing. Um, the, I, we talked a little bit in the chat, but like I think Abby mentioned it too that the, the ending of the book was very rushed, and it's the show kind of ended a little before the book ends, which I think was a smart decision. Um, but I had problems with like I have other authors. I think I've even mentioned it before, where when like a real author with quotes like decides to write an alternate history book, and they all kind of follow a pattern where like they have a smart concept, it's a really cool story, and then by the end of the book, everything's back to normal. It's like I told you a thing, but like I couldn't stick with it. I had to get it back to the real world, and yeah, that's what happens in the book where like we're we're doing spoilers, so like <laughs> FDR gets reelected, Pearl Harbor, Pearl Harbor happens a year later <laughs> or two years later, <clears throat> and it's just like this weird kind of thing. But the whole Lindbergh baby stuff was very confusing in the book and it was probably just as confusing in the show yeah. but it was shot very well I, I loved the actors i thought they were all cast very well um <clears throat> the kid that played um sandy like he was so perfect because i just wanted to slap him the whole time until <laughs> he like realized it was like that's exactly how i felt when i was reading the book like why are you why can't you see what your father's trying to like protect you from um but uh, no, I really liked it. It was very evocative, very um, resonant, and um, you know, very unsettling for anyone who has Jewish ancestors. Like, be like, like Adam was saying, like, oh, is this all takes. Like, you know, for thousands I don't think of years, you, it I was don't just think like, you even need oh. to be some with Jewish ancestors. I mean, when I watched the Washington DC <laughs> scene, I could barely sleep afterwards. And it's just anyone who's other, anyone who yeah. feels, and it was that same feeling. Could we go on a holiday? Could could my suitcases be put in the hall? Oh, menacing. Um, how about you, Abby? Mm. What did you make of it, book and show, if you've done both or neither? I don't know. Yeah, so I read the book in uh, 2017, and I actually I found my Goodreads review for it. So, um, yeah, basically, I'm going to kind of echo what Greg said. Like, I did not like the end of the book because it was just it was so rushed um, and like it didn't really fit the tone. Um, and I had issues with the writing style, too, according to my Goodreads review. <laughs> um, and then um, but I, I so I, I would give the book probably like three and a half stars and then the show four because I, I liked the show a lot more. Um, there were still some things I didn't like about it, but I think that it was like, it just resonated with me a lot more than the book for some reason, even though like the family dynamics were exactly the same, but I think just like seeing it acted out because it reminded me a lot of uh, my own family. Cause like I have an older brother who's very different in pol political concepts compared to my parents. And like my dad is like super, like reminds me so much of Herman. And then also this is a uh, very similar to like my, fa the way my grandparents grew up because uh, my family's from Chicago, but like we're extremely secular, like basically non-observant Jews. And so like, I could like totally picture this just like happening to my grandfather and like his family and stuff. So mm. it's uh, definitely resonated with me a lot more. Tough, yeah. Um, and then last but not least, Vali Movali. Uh, so, yeah, I, I didn't read the book. Um, I have watched all the show, obviously. Uh, I'd give it uh, four Lindbergh babies. I, I enjoyed the show. Um, the set design was amazing. I want to live in a craftsman house so bad. Uh, like you said, <laughs> there there are deeply unsettling parts of the show that, that, you know, obviously the big one for me was the Selden call where his mom doesn't come home. Oh, but like Jesus. you said, Bina, like, there's just like these oh. little micro, well, maybe not even microaggressions, but like, they're like these little things that people are saying or doing that just like, oh, irked me so bad. Like, and yeah, it was very unsettling. Um, it did remind me, and this is going to be like the second dollop reference I've been telling the people to go listen to. The first one being the Marblehead Smallpox Riots, and that's very applicable to our current time. But for this show, it reminded me of the business plot. Do you guys remember that? Where, uh, a group of conservative uh, business leaders wanted to set up a fascist uh, government in the U.S.? Nope. 
Oh yeah, that I was missed like, that one. That was like two years ago, or it was, it was yeah. Is this a real world event, or is this a yes? Uh, like, it, what is it, this? It, it is a real. It, well, the Dollops a comedy podcast, but they do uh, stories from American history, and basically in the '30s, if I'm remembering this correctly, like a bunch of veterans that weren't paid marched on Washington under the guise of trying to get this guy like Schmedley or Butler or something like that into Oh, Schmedley Butler, yeah. I know. He was the general. He was yeah. Okay. I forgot about the fascist stuff that comes later, but I Yeah, so but yeah, basically a bunch of, you know, people like Henry Ford were like backing this, you know, run for government, you know, to lead the government against FDR and it reminded me of that and it's just deeply unsettling because I feel like at any point, you know, if you know, Bina may sound like she's like, This is all it takes. Well, i feel like it is all it takes. You see people acting like idiots now and you know and it is because they're other. Like I think that there could be a point in the near future where just by having an out of state license plate will bring extra scrutiny onto you. Mm. Ugh. Okay. Well, um, I watched the show as it was airing. So we watched it week by week and we made the decision to do that. Like sometimes we wait till the whole show's out and then we'll watch it. But it was so unsettling and so intense that I only wanted to watch it one a week. I would give it a five out of five. There's nothing in it I would change, even though the first episode was very slow and in keeping with the book and it's only when you've watched the whole thing you realize how masterful that is because it's that slow unsettling creep of the craziness um the book i would dock a point i still think it's a good book but there are issues with the tone the ending we'll get into that when we discuss the final episode um and also obviously the show has the benefit of broadening out the perspective from the little boy and giving certain characters i think more of a fair shake people like evelyn i think do better in the show than in the book and probably Alvin too in a way so so let's start off with the paterfamilias um, Herman Levin so the the Roth family in the book it's all named after Philip Roth's family and the little boy is yeah. Philip Roth um, but it was changed to the Levin family apparently the director David Simon had a conversation with the author and the author was completely supportive of of the TV show but just said look because you're going to put your own spit on it and I don't have complete, complete control out of respect. Can you just change the name of the family? Which was kind of interesting to me. So let's start off with Herman Levin, who's played by Morgan Spector, who's really, um, I would say, more of a theatre actor, but I thought was tremendous. He plays an insurance agent. He's doing pretty well. He lives with his family in an, a rented apartment. Um, he's a New Deal socialist. He's a big fan of FDR. He's a huge fan of Walter Winchell, one of those classic dads who sits by the radio and spouts opinions, but is, you know, just a successful insurance agent. And as we meet him, he has his wife, he's got his two kids, and in the extended family is his sister-in-law, Evelyn, and his nephew, Alvin, who are all kind of in one way or another under his care. I love this actor, and I think... This would be me, like the person who clings on to a belief in the Republic, even when all evidence is against you. He has such a tragic faith in institutions, in the law, in the police, in the good, in democracy itself. And the way I was trying to explain it to my husband is that I'm also a second generation immigrant. And I think we second generation immigrants have a romantic view of our country 
that our parents give us because they've usually come from somewhere that didn't have those founding benefits of democracy and rule of law and you know they've made it it's kind of the American dream and um, I feel I would be him I feel I would be the guy who wanted to cling on to this belief and who wouldn't be run out of town because this is my country and so I thought he was tremendous Um, how do you guys feel about Herman Levin he like I said earlier like he reminds me so much of my dad like watching him just made me so frustrated because <laughs> it made me think of when I got fresh because um obviously like I read this book uh basically like right after Trump got elected and stuff and my family is extremely like anti-Trump and just being in the house with my parents because I was still in high school was the worst thing ever because it was just non-stop talking about politics like every minute of every day the news always on and so just watching his wife get so fed up with him just not just continuously talking about politics and just not doing anything was just like I just was relating so hard to that and I was like this man is my dad like (laughs) he is my dad (laughs) he just complains but doesn't do anything regarding the like trying to change it or anything he's just like well everything is fucked everyone hates the Jews everyone's always hated the Jews we can't do anything about it the end (laughs) what I like about him though is that he does on two occasions so very early on in that first episode when they all go to Union City because he's been offered a promotion and his wife played by Zoe Kazan so beautifully excellent just gives him this impassioned speech about be what it's like to be the only Jewish girl in school in a, in a non-Jewish neighborhood. And he does turn down the promotion, which I thought was really amazing. And then again, when they're being threatened to be sent off to the middle of the country to Kentucky and under Homestead 42, he gives up his good job to become a manual laborer to save his family. So I kind of like that about him. And I also like the fact that by the end, when he realizes that she was right and they should have gone to Canada, he actually says it. And I think for a certain man, a certain sort of head of family of that era, that was quite a big deal to have that I, humility. I, I agree with uh, what what you and Abby have said. And I think that um, the dynamic to, between him and Alvin is maybe the most like important of the entire show. And the most interesting to me was that, yeah, you, you can sit there and complain and yell at the radio, whereas Alvin's like a take take action, you know, regardless of the legality of those actions. Um, but is that, really is that a fair comparison, though? Because Alvin has no responsibilities. You know, like, Herman can't go off and join the war. And that's why that final argument, that horrible argument between um, Herman and Alvin, I think is really tough. Because- well, Alvin... I think Alvin does because he really, I think, uh, knows that the two younger cousins look up to him. So I think he does realize he has a responsibility to them, and that's why he wants to go and fight. And we see we see Herman like develop after that fight because he's out there uh, campaigning for Roosevelt and stuff. So like that he realizes like there are actual things that he can do. Like you don't have to go off to war to make a difference. Like you can you know campaign, you can protest, you can do things that don't put your family in danger and don't like or that don't um, cause you to like have to leave your family. Like there are other options, and I think that Mm. he like realizes that after the fight. But he's like the every guy, like, I'll use myself as an example. I feel like I, because I go out to vote, because I, you know, put money into my 401k before, I, because I do everything right. Like, I, I look at, like, what just happened. And I'm like, well, you know, what what are we supposed to do? 
Like, <laughs> if you do everything you're supposed to and be a good citizen, like, shouldn't you be up on top? Like, why is everything in the shit right now? That's that's um, Herman, right? Well, he's like, yeah. he 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 doesn't get it. He's he's quite naive. He thinks he's if you tick the boxes, if you pay your taxes, if you're a good neighbor, if you keep yourself to yourself, surely America is the place where you can succeed. And the, I mean, this to me, this whole book and thing is just the disillusionment disillusionment of Herman and then of Alvin in in kind of different ways I think what's really interesting if you want to contrast the book and the TV show is that in the TV show when he finally has that confrontation with Alvin and Alvin's saying what did you ever do but we as the viewer know he's gone to rescue Selden which actually was incredibly brave but in the book that happens after the argument so in the book Alvin's actually kind of right in a way and Philip Roth is actually being oh, harsher. He's actually being harsher on because actually I got to the argument in the book. I read, I reread the book after the TV show, and I was like, "Oh, does he not go to rescue Selden then in the book?" And then it happens really right at the very end in that compressed ending. So to that extent, Alvin in his kind of cynical post-injury state is actually kind of more justified. Well, even in the TV show, because he doesn't really know what's happened. So, yeah. Anything else on Herman Levin? I kept expecting him to jump in an X-Wing and fly away because he looks exactly like Oscar Isaacs. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. But he definitely did have that very, uh, the, like, that theater presence, like, almost like he was part of, like, a old radio drama or something, which I think mm. worked really well. He's perfectly cast. He looks like someone from the 1940s. He doesn't have a modern look at all. Um, His pants. They all wore their pants so high. So high. <laughs> Uh, and you could smoke hey, you anywhere. The suspenders on. See, I focus on the height of the pants, and Matt's focused on the drinking and smoking. Tells you about us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the only thing I was going to say about Herman in sort of book relative to show that surprised me is that I guess in the show you do kind of see the elder brother who has the fruit packing business, but you don't realize the contrast. Like in the book, it's made very clear that his other brothers are much more money minded and all, all live in swanky houses in more middle-class neighborhoods. And that, you know, Herman as the guy who's still renting the flat has been left behind. Like his his principles, his refusal to do that kind of work has left him behind, which I thought was interesting and an aspect we didn't really get um, in the show. We were just watching Aquafina from Queens and David uh, Krumholtz, who plays Monty Levin was a coke snorting bogus uh, pr- uh like event promoter so it was weird to see him in two different things <laughs> he's another actor he's bernard the elf from the santa claus that's his yeah. iconic role he's, he's a great great actor um, anyway you go abby <laughs> yeah so i just um i actually really like sorry i just wanted to i wanted to mention this when you mentioned the last name change because i thought it actually was um helped a lot with the show because i really liked that they changed the last name to levin or I might accidentally call them Levin because I know so many people with last name Levin and spell the same. Anyways, or Levine. Um, but like, just because that is a super Jewish last name, because, you know, they're part of the Levy tribe. Like, you know, it's very Jewish. And I think that is actually like, they bring that up in the show because I don't think Roth would really be associated that much with being Jewish. And so like, in the show, they talk like, oh, like I could tell you're Jewish by your last name. And I think that's something really important because like, it Judaism a lot of the time is a, is a non-visible minority unless you're like mm. Orthodox. And and so like because I have an extremely Jewish last name and like my brother is always like I want to change my last name so people just don't 
no because and I think that was like I think change your last name was also just like to something more Jewish just like kind of helped to illustrate the fact that like this is like they can't assimilate to the extent that um the rest of America wants them to just because they'll always like have this heritage and like no matter how much there are a couple scenes though where like people just look at them and are like oh Jewish which I was like how do they know there's a really interesting scene in the book where young Phillips with his mum on the bus when he's gone to visit Aunt Evelyn and he suddenly realizes for the first time when he looks at his mum objectively that she looks very Jewish, um, which I thought was really interesting. The first time you realize that you really are other. Um, but the point, I mean, like David Simon was very clear on this and Philip Roth apparently was very clear to David Simon that these are not Orthodox Jews. These are not people who are going around with looking um, incredibly different. Yes, they're different because they're Jewish, but they have assimilated. So the I, the whole bank will get into Bengal stuff, but the whole idea that they need to do work harder and become more American, that they're going as fast as any immigrant group can and you shouldn't expect them and they shouldn't be required to go faster, that these aren't, um, these aren't Orthodox Jews. These are, these are pretty assimilated Jews already, even if they Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, no matter how reform, how secular, like my family, like, we literally were non-observant. Like I never went to shul in my entire life until like, I started university like we it doesn't matter because I look Jewish I have a Jewish last name you know it's like it doesn't matter and so like you can be completely assimilated and it's still like there'll be ways that people want to try to find you as other even though you're basically completely assimilated yeah. so I just thought the last name change was very like evident of that yeah which is a where, very like, good point and actually I mean in a way you can view this tv show and book as a, a story of delusion men living with the consequences of their delusions so with Herman, it was the belief in the Republic, which you can argue is or isn't restored by the end. Uh, maybe we'll go to Alvin next because we've talked about him so much in contrast. So Alvin, for those of you, if you haven't watched it, is the nephew. He's got the reputation of just being a bit of a ne'er-do-well, can't really hold on a job, didn't do well in school, um, gets into fights, gets sacked from jobs that his uncle keeps trying to get for him. But basically, fundamentally, I think we're meant to think he's a good kid signs up for to fight against Hitler for the Canadians um, so gets shot um, loses a leg comes back a, a much more cynical man and eventually um, sort of gets engaged to the the daughter of the pinball king of Philadelphia so ends up goes from being ultimate ultimately an ultra principled to being incredibly cynical he just wants to be the big man the rich man he believes he's lost his leg for no reason the country's gone and it's just about making money. And that brings him, even at the end, into confrontation with Herman. So that by the end of this, all the kind of non-core members of the family have had to be shed so that the family can endure. So Alvin and, and Herman fall out. How did you like um, the performance of Anthony Boyle, a Northern Irish Catholic, as Alvin Levin? <laughs> I was so surprised to find out that he was Irish. And I was like, he looked, I thought he was Jewish. I Googled him and I was like, wait, that's Anthony Boyle. Like I didn't even recognize him. I thought he was Jewish. I was, I was very surprised. <clears throat> I had just seen him in Tolkien. So I was like, Hey, this guy. Yeah. Apparently when he went up for the role um, and David Simon was kind of like trying to cast Jewish actors and obviously didn't for everyone. And he, and when he said he was a Catholic growing up in Northern Ireland, he's like, don't worry, that's Jewish enough. In other words, if you've grown up as a minority in a, in a, you know, that that gives you that. But I think it's a really great performance. I'd never heard of him before, but 
He was Scorpius in Cursed Child. How could you not know that? Which is weird because I actually saw that in the West End, <laughs> but yeah, obviously didn't recognize. Oh, that. Is, is that the eighth book that Casey says I'm not allowed to read? <laughs> it doesn't exist. <laughs> not canon. I really enjoyed it. Controversial. Um. <laughs> I, I well, I've heard that the that the actual performance is amazing. So yeah, it's one of the most stunning bits of theatre I've ever seen. Um, yeah. So Alvin, I I have to confess, I started off really loving Alvin and I really thought he was going to end up turning out to be the lovable rogue. But by the end, I just, he was the one I wanted to slap by the end. Yeah, <laughs> I had pretty much the exact same impression of him. Um, and one thing, being it, when you called him a ne'er-do-well for the last two minutes, I'm like, what is a nerdy-well? I'm like, do I not know what a nerdy-well is? And then I realized you said ne'er-do-well. And that's all I was thinking about while oh you guys were talking. God, Greg. So we can say nerdy wells from now on. Like he's a nerdy well. God spot. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, did any of you sympathize more? I mean, I suppose there's a, a way in which one could sympathize with him and think, well, he lost his leg. No wonder. Any of you come out of it, you know, liking Alvin or understanding him at least? I understood him. Right? I Oh, yeah, I didn't hate him but at the end. I was, like, upset that he, they got into that fight. But I wasn't like, oh, he's the scum of the earth now. Like, I was just like, he, I, I don't know. I didn't hate him. And I don't know. <laughs> I mean, even by the end, I was tired of Herman's kind of, oh, here we go again. Like, just let it go. Have a nice dinner. Like, really, we're doing this again? Like, I was tired of that as a viewer. So, like, in this family, I can imagine how Alvin would be tired of it as well. Even though he was right. Like, I agreed with everything Herman was saying. Like, yeah. Did not have to have that fight. Was not going to change his mind. You know, like, I don't think he would have. And he didn't. I, I felt that, like, right up until that fight, like, I was on board. Like, he, you know, he hadn't really, uh, I don't know. It, it was kind of a quick turn. And I was like, well, that's unfortunate that he's going that way. But, uh, you know, there's still time. I found it, um, like I said, uh, I really liked uh, the dynamic between the father and Alvin. But I think it also plays on this idea of America and what, the actual title means like one guy's just like yeah he's a good citizen like he watches out for his family whatever alvin's like you gotta hustle you gotta make the money and you know those are two ways to achieve like the american dream and both are you know fine but it's just two ways to do it and i think that's he, he played that really well it was and just who has a friend named mushy <laughs> i know it was just tragic to me like i think both of their journeys are tragic i mean herman's journey to cynicism about his own country is is very tragic and one that I probably should experience myself to grow up in terms of my relationship with my country and I think that Alvin's is even more tragic like to go from those ideals to being so cynical and so hard I I don't know I found it really hard to stomach like at the end when he's just the big man in that really flashy suit and it's kind of like maybe a product of the 1940s where you feel if Alvin only understood what Herman had been through to rescue Selden and what he had his enlightenment. And if Herman could only really truly understand what Alvin had been through in the war and um, with his leg, maybe they could actually still be friends. But oh. um, OK, so let's go through maybe back to Zoe Kazan as Elizabeth Best Levin. I think David Simon, when he met Zoe Kazan, believed she was Jewish, but she's actually Turkish <laughs> and not Jewish. And he was like, well, that's Jewish enough in terms of being othered. Um, I think she's one of the most articulate, intelligent actresses and writers in Hollywood. So she's the reason I really wanted to watch this show. I think her performance was tremendous. Philip Roth clearly has this thing about his mum. He writes these idealized mothers 
Um, I don't have much else to say other than she's so caring, so wise, <laughs> the glue that holds the family together. I love the marriage. I love the relationship between husband and wife. Like they may disagree, but there's no recrimination. Yeah. So um, if I can plug yet another podcast, it would be Fresh Air's interview, Terry Gross interviewing Zoe Kazan. Yes. Uh, where they discuss um, this role and especially the role of her grandfather played during the McCarthy hearing where he actually named names um, and how that kind of played into the overall, you know, kind of atmosphere of this show and how she used that. Um, it was really interesting. It was, it was a good listen. I'd recommend to you guys. Listen yeah, absolutely. Um, I'd also recommend there's an official HBO podcast that accompanies the show, a bit like the one with Chernobyl, where Craig Mason, not Craig Mason, where um, Peter Sagal interviews David Simon episode by episode, and it gives you a lot of insight. Oh, cool. I'll check that. Yeah, I listened to the first Peter and the last Sagal's one really of those. I thought they were pretty good. Yeah. So any anything I'm drop, I'll try and drop in knowledge from that uh, when I can. But it's it's really worth a listen. What I loved about Bess is that she's just the kind of standard. She's my mum, right? My mum was the homemaker that kept the spirit of the home, kept everyone fed, worked hard. Um, seemed like she was just all about love and empathy and sympathy. And then as the show goes on, Bess seems to become stronger and stronger to the point where, you know, when when Sandy comes back and calls them ghetto Jews and she just slaps him. That was a shock. That was a real shock. And then finally, when when Evelyn comes back and wants to take shelter in the house, I really thought that Bess was going to cave and take her in. And I would have taken her in. I would have forgiven Evelyn and taken her in. And the strength of Bess to just say, I love you, but I will never forgive you. And I'm going to keep my family, aka the four of us. You're no longer part of it. I have no responsibility for you. She ends up, I mean, if Herman is kind of broken and disillusioned by the end, as is Alvin, Bess just finds herself and finds herself. I mean, it's not really a character arc. It's just a straight line arrow to strength as far as I'm concerned. What? Yeah. And yeah. her, um, the way she handled the phone call with um, uh, Selden, like that oh scene was one of the most like powerful scenes because it was just a phone call with her. But like in the, you also as a viewer, you want to know like, okay, what's there's gunshots in the background, what's going on? But like you're so drawn into her, just make some rice krispies, do you have some milk? Like and like I felt like she was talking me down like as I was watching, mm. I felt so much better <laughs> by the end of it. I feel like and, I need uh, her as my mum in this crisis. I really do. What's amazing actually is reading the books straight after watching um, that final episode. Um, is it, all the dialogue is basically from the book. It's incredibly mm. faithful, and that scene's as written. But it echoes an earlier scene where young Philip gets locked in Selden's bathroom or thinks he's locked in it, and Selden's mum talks him down in kind of the same way. So you kind of feel that there's this, the, the mums of Summit Avenue as, as maybe seen as kind of trivial and sort of inconsequential people are just the wisest and most wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, she's she's really just the glue that held that whole family together. And like like you said, she just developed strength over time. And she finally tells her husband to fucking, you know, what's what. And, you know, as you said before, he finally mans up at the end and said, yeah, you were right. We should have done that. Which takes a lot. The the one moment I really love about her is when she's been on the phone with Selden and she makes eye contact with her husband. She turns, she just glances at her youngest son, Philip, and says to the husband, we have some responsibility to Selden. And then 
like she doesn't need to say anymore. Like he knows he has to go recklessly Selden because she's figured out that her son basically got Selden sent to Kentucky. I mean, she's so smart. Um, yeah, I don't know what else to say about her. I just think she's tremendous. I think Zoe Kazan, if there are Emmys or whatever, just needs to get all the awards. I also did love her in um, Buster Scruggs. She was uh, in my favorite little story in that. Mrs. I forgot the name that she played, but that was my. She was very yeah, good in that as well. The interview I heard with her is like, "Why do you keep on getting cast as like a person from the 30s and 40s?" <laughs> well, that was 1870s, but yes, I see your point. Yeah, but she is she is tremendous. I think. Um, okay, so let let us contrast the wonderful Bess with her elder sister, uh, Evelyn Finkel, played by with played by Winona Ryder, who actually is half Jewish um, and very proud, apparently, of her Jewish heritage. And a key change from the book is that in the book, she's the younger sister, and in the TV show, she's the older sister, partly because they wanted to cast Winona Ryder, but also partly because I think it makes her situation maybe more understandable like I come from a culture where like in the Asian culture which still wants to marry off people there's a pressure to marry so if you were an older sister and your younger sister was already married with kids you would be very much seen as a social failure so the idea that she when she starts off she's dating a married Italian guy who she clearly can't bring home to mother and then when she finally bags this guy he may be old and he may be controversial but he's a rabbi, so finally I have someone I can bring home to mother and like it doesn't get better than a rabbi. I, I felt for her in going from being kind of like socially a failure to suddenly <gasps> little Evelyn Finkel is at the White House. I think that that role inversion from just from like older to younger sister, which may not seem like a lot, I think it's actually really effective because it also brings up at the end when her sister stands up to her. Um, it kind of, it, it adds a, an extra little... Uh, period under that i think um yeah, yeah i think uh maybe the the switch even though i didn't read the book um is effective because there is always this agitation and that she's the older sister she should know better she should be able to see what the fuck is going on and she can't right and it gets away from the trope of like oh you're the baby child that's just irresponsible and you know um yeah yeah she reminds me a bit of a like Jewish Scarlett O'Hara who probably when she was young and she's, you know, very pretty as a very young girl, probably had lots of men on her, like after her, but kind of was a bit too tricky <clears throat> and tried to play them off against each other and then just ended up with no one by accident. And one day realizes she's 35 and it's, I don't know. I do find her very sympathetic. I have to say my husband really hated the character, but also really hated Winona Ryder's performance, but I thought the performance, he really? found it too vacuous, but I thought it was meant to be vacuous. I mean, I'm just, I thought yeah. it was so spot on. And uh, yeah. I wish I was 35. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I am 35 and I don't, I don't know. Like it's, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, but it's not okay. It wouldn't have been okay in the 1940s if you were a Jewish woman, I guess. No, I know. Of, of that, of that era. Um, You'd literally be middle-aged. How far do you think by the end Evelyn gets the difficulty or gets the problematic nature of what is happening to the Jews. 
I don't think she got it so, until that, like the wedding. Until they were uh, arrested. The party, right. the party at. Well, I think she got it first a little bit at the party at the White House when she's like, "Oh, maybe it's not the best thing in the world that I'm dancing with the Nazi foreign minister." And then, you know, shortly afterwards, when <laughs> something goes wrong, blame the Jews. Like, right? Yeah, okay. <laughs> when Henry Ford's like, you know, down south, you guys would be handling the N words, and I was like, "Whoa!" <laughs> but yeah. her phrase that is one of my favorites. I can never say it. Is it Gokan Gafan Yam? It just means go shit in the ocean. That's one of my favorite. Um, Yiddish slurs as well. So how much did she know? Like at the end when she's like sort of saying that Lindbergh baby kidnapping story, has she genuinely gone delusional? Well, Well, in the book, that's what happened. That's true though, right? That's that's what what we're meant to believe. No, we're not. No, we're not. No, we're not. No, we're not. No, I I thought when I read the book, that's what the that's what the answer was. Was that his baby yeah. was kidnapped? And he's been like a puppet of the Nazis because they have his son. Yeah. So Philip, so no, no, no. Idea. So Philip Roth said to David Simon, "I wrote the book, and I wanted it. Definitely is the case in the book that Lindbergh was an anti-Semite and was not a nice man and took America down a bad path." And I wanted to create a kind of conspiracy hoax at the end because, you know, obviously if Trump loses an election, his base is going to say it was stolen. Like people will always have a justifying excuse for their guy. And so he created the Lindbergh baby thing and put it in the mouth of Evelyn. But that wasn't meant to be the reality. And it has bugged him ever since that people think it was. And and what's even worse is that people in the real world now think that Lindbergh was only anti-Semitic because Lindbergh babies kidnapped. And and he said said to David Simon... anti-Semitic in real life? So Philip Roth said to David Simon... Make sure that at the end of your show, no one thinks this shit was real. And well, that it's just... He's, he's lucky Lindy. Wait, wait, wait a minute. So, okay. The show, and I didn't read the book. <laughs> the show, I thought that she was just doing a voiceover that, I mean, it could have been coming out of the radio, but we're hearing it from, from uh, what's her name, Evelyn. That was I, I thought the idea that was, was that that's what ruse. happened, but they wanted us to like see no one was listening to her because she was so pathetic. Yeah. Yeah. Like, the idea is yeah, that I, she can't handle the truth that her husband was nutty. She can't handle the truth that her husband backed to the wrong camp and they did horrible things. So if they backed Lindbergh and if Lindbergh was really a Nazi, that makes them complicit in Nazism. But if Lindbergh was really a nice guy who was being blackmailed, that gets them off the hook. And so Evelyn and her head to not go mad has to make herself believe that they were part of something that wasn't evil. And so, so what the fuck happened? What, what yeah, actually wait, happened? So, okay, wait. This is my a problem is, because... Okay, when... yeah, yeah, yeah. So th- this actually fixes a few things. Oh my God. So, I mean, this would mean that the Canadians actually intercepted his plane and took him down, right? In like, the show. They, they, they did in, regime change. In, in the, the show, yeah. In the show. Because otherwise I'm like, wait, was he actually working? Were those, like, Nazis that actually did that? And he was in, like, you know, Alvin was working with Nazis. Like, what happened? Like, I was a little confused by that bit at the end. So in the book, it's just as, and this is the criticism that Greg and others would have, isn't it? That it's just a deus ex machina, that we know he's had accidents in the past and he just literally disappears in the cloud. So the problem that has been introduced into history by Philip Roth, you can say he chickens out, he can't resolve it. So basically, he just takes uh, Lindbergh literally out of the story. And we never know what happens to him. 
and Alvin has nothing to do with it. And David Simon said to Philip Roth, this is problematic because people are going to know what, what happened to him. Uh... So therefore, rather than Alvin just being a normal private in the war, he makes him a radio specialist so that the Canadian slash British can recruit him to try and help take Lindbergh out. But in the okay, book, Michael... it's just, uh, we don't know. So his son didn't join the Hitler Youth? The whole Lindbergh baby thing is bullshit. Lindbergh's baby died. Okay, but my question is then when was Evelyn told this lie and how long was she perpetuating this lie knowing that she was going against her own people, making their life, like knowing that the Nazis were trying to make life difficult for the Jews in America? Because obviously if she knew they were being blackmailed by the Nazis, then Lindbergh was doing something purposefully to like through blackmail or other means. Oh, I don't think I don't make... think this is I don't think this ha- I don't think Evelyn knows anything. Like literally, I think she's quite dumb. No offense okay, to her. Okay. I think she's quite stupid. I think basically once her husband is arrested, that to me is the point at which Evelyn figures out that she's in danger, and that at that point, when you know when the whole when there's a counter coup, and she has to justify it herself. She has to figure out how to justify it. So in the book, it's interesting that as a epilogue um her husband then writes a sort of uh, an apology pro vita sua like a sort of a little book about my time with Lindbergh, and he starts putting forward that theory because they're basically trying to get themselves out of trouble i understand okay. that I yeah that's what i was thinking is he probably told her that okay 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 that but like because it to me it feels like she's still perpetuating these wrongdoings because she thinks like she would know there are things that are she's perpetuating bad things, but she thinks that she has to do it because the Nazis are no, forcing no, no, her to. But no. why is she putting her family in danger? I think Evelyn genuinely. I think she genuinely just thinks she's doing the right thing. I think in her head, Bengelsdorf is a wise and good Jew, and her hayseed relatives just don't understand like he does because he's so educated and so wise that they just should trust him because he knows what's best for them. And I think she believes that up until the final episode when she sees him getting arrested and maybe has some doubts. And then she really loses it, right? You see her with her hair down, desperation, go to her sister. And when she realizes that the sister's not going to take her in, she's stuck with Bengelsdorf. They're going to have to live out their purgatory together. Then I think it's a convenient truth to believe that this whole thing... Lindbergh was really a good man they weren't because if she admits that Lindbergh wasn't a good man she has to admit that her husband was taken in by Lindbergh and he's the only thing she has left she should have realized it when they served shrimp at the presidential dinner it's not kosher I remember reading the book and this must might be because I was not as critical reader or I misremember it but I could have sworn there was a scene in the book in that last chapter where there was a radio report or something of Lindbergh showing up in Berlin with Hitler. In the show, they did that as it was a conspiracy thingy. But I remember that in the book as, okay, this happened. So that's why I assumed the whole thing was true. No, well, I, yeah, so, I mean, maybe it's worth have both of us having a reread. Because I, well, I remember not doing that. But I, I remember it more as, um, again, there was propaganda put out, right? Because all the, all the far right people now have to sort of backtrack, right? Um, yeah. But no, to me, and I, the only reason I say this with some confidence is listening to that episode six David Simon interview where they talk about the difference in the ending and him saying Philip Roth has been. It's kind of like he regrets inventing because now far right nutters are, 
you know, Charles yeah, Lindbergh has been, you know, and they were trying to make it super. It's a bit, you know, it's a bit like that rape scene in Game well, of Thrones. Lindbergh Friends. did give that uh. speech that started off the whole thing. That was a real speech. Yeah, that he gave. the Damon speech uh, is real. Yeah. Um, where he I just did not know that. Yeah. Lindbergh was oh, a yeah. nasty was a piece of man. shit, and his wife was far worse. I mean, what angered me is that his wife came off as better. I have so many. Yeah, well, that's also we sell so many copies of Gift from the Sea. It's Do like, you? I need this for. It's I just you have copies of Gift from the Sea. I'm like, fine. Here, just read the profit instead. Yeah, oh, what is that? <laughs> what is that, Greg? It's like this little like tchotchke kind of like blessings of nature and the world. And isn't it great to be an American and love? It's it's a little book that she wrote, um, Anna Morrill oh, sure. in like the fifties. It's like a book that everybody gives yeah, see, everyone for their graduation. I remember hearing about like racist Lindbergh and stuff, and I guess I just thought it was a different Lindbergh. <laughs> no. So what happened is, here's a bit of Lindbergh history. In fact, maybe we should do a vol-up on Lindbergh. So after the whole Lindbergh baby kidnapping, they were, they had so much publicity that they went to live in a, a village in England for much of the 1930s. And Lindbergh, on behalf of the U.S. government, his first trip went to Germany to sort of ascertain what they were doing with their remilitarization. And then after that, he made another two trips and um, on his own back and saw... So he got radicalized. He saw the rise of Hitler as very much a good thing, as did his wife. They have glowing diary entries and speeches. And then he he got that medal, right? Yeah, and he he got the Iron Cross, for fuck's sake. And then he goes back to America... And um, he was very much agitating for, for America to keep out of the war in his Des Moines speech. This is September 11th, 1941. So this is when Hitler has overrun much of Europe. The three most important groups who have been pressing this country toward war are the British, the Jewish and the Roosevelt administration. And, you know, he did not see the Jews as Americans. So and he was considering a presidential run. And there was, in fact, a lot of criticism of Roosevelt, even on the left, for considering a third term. You know, people didn't do three terms necessarily. So um, it's all, if you read the book, well, my copy of the book, there's, I think Philip Roth has this sort of, the, the real biographies of the people. So all through their marriage, Anne Morrow Lindbergh had written books like covering his flights, but she was as anti-Semitic as him. And the only thing that kind of stuck in my throat was seeing her as kind of the savior of the counter coup because in the book and the show it's her giving that big speech when she's busted out of the mental asylum um, and calling for the election that brings us all to a close and I just thought it kind of makes her seem more heroic than I think she has any right to be seen as and that pisses me off um Lindbergh was a piece of shit he wasn't as much of a piece of shit as Henry Ford who like with his own money, had copies of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion printed and handed out for free. He printed an anti-Semitic newspaper. Like, he ran a newspaper that was literally just like, the Jews are terrible. (laughs) He was horrible. So, yeah, for the business plot, it wasn't actually Henry Ford, even though he might have been a part of it. It was mainly Prescott Bush. So. (sighs) So where do you guys come out on Evelyn at the end? Do you think she's learned anything? Do you like her? Um, I feel bad for her because yeah. she's I like I don't know how to explain this, but maybe it's just because I don't know, because it's like she and her husband represent this idea that like if one person speaks on behalf of an entire group, then everything that is okay. And so I feel like she 
I don't know, like, she doesn't take as not, she, she, okay, this might, this just popped into my head, so this might not be a, a good thought, but, like, she, because I also don't have anything against intermarriage at all, like, I'm really, like, whatever, but she obviously is, like, very not connected to her Judaism, because she was, you know, dating a non-Jew and didn't care, whatever, so she is not connected to the her Judaism in the way that the rest of her family is, and, like, like she sees herself is just completely American, like, and her family, they, they say they see themselves as completely American, but they also identify as Jewish, and that is, like, I'm not saying, like, holding them back, but it is something that is, like, they do still identify as Jewish, and so the fact that she basically holds no regard for her Judaism kind of allows her to be, like, oh, well, I can, I don't, like, you know, the things that are happening around me like it doesn't affect me and like one of the funniest scenes is when she goes to the synagogue and like she clearly doesn't know the words of what to do and she's trying to impress a new boyfriend who's a rabbi (laughs) oh when i know i just say good but yeah so it's like i think because she's so removed from this part of her identity she like feels that she can you know, like she feels like, oh, it's it's not a big deal. And then when she realizes what's really happening, and like, even if she thinks she's as removed as possible from this identity, she's not. And like, she realizes like this w- would affect her too. And then it's like, she understands. So, I don't know what I really think about that, but that's just, <laughs> I guess, something that I just. Realized. I think I think she genuinely thinks she's acting in the best interest. I think when she's when Sandy goes off to Kentucky and when she's relocating the family, I think she genuinely believes. Because she believes her husband that it's what's for the best. I think Bengelsdorf sends them to Homestead 42 because he's pissed off they didn't let Sandy come with him to the state dinner. But I think she is just a silly little girl. I really do. I actually felt sorry for her. I really kind of like it was the only moment I didn't side with that with Bess. I, I really felt when her sister came home, she should have taken her in. But um, maybe I'm just a I soft mean, I think yeah I think she was endangering the family and I think that Bess had every right to say no and like family is family but Bess has little children that she has to think about in the time that they're living so I don't know I think that uh, she was right to turn Evelyn around uh, Evelyn away if if it meant protecting her family yeah and that's that's basically the you know I think that's that's what the book is about right that for this family of four to survive they've got to prioritize themselves it's uh yeah it's harsh Okay, so maybe let's move from Evelyn to the wonderful, controversial Rabbi uh, Bengelsdorf, played by the 100% Sicilian and yet always plays Jews, John yeah. Totoro. <laughs> I think by now he's an honorary Jew. <laughs> um, oh, where to begin with Bengelsdorf? Does ben- when does the penny drop, if ever, for Bengelsdorf? Does, Bengel- does Bengelsdorf think he's doing the right thing the whole way through? I think he has to. Otherwise, like, why is he doing it? He's not doing it to get ahead or uh, to impress anybody. I don't think. I think he realizes. I don't know, but he has that. He has that story about the, like the Confederate guy that like rose high, in, you know, the Jewish Confederate guy. Judah, um, Judah P. Benjamin. Yeah, I don't know. I who, feel uh, dealt with his own <laughs> discrimination back in the day as well. I feel that Bengelstorp is one of those guys who wants so desperately to be accepted that he doesn't stop to think whether the whether those people are worthy of is their acceptance really something that you should strive for so oh my god it's so amazing you can be the second in in command of the confederate government is he just is he just a grown-up selden like he wants friends so bad i think it's i also a- think he had a different view of like his jewish people were not the like new wave immigrant it was the older you know he's been here for 200 years 
he has a congregation like this is different from you know like the the more like herman's people i guess even though they're all technically part of the same people yeah again i think there's huge analogies here so i'll give you a great example so david simon made clear that there was like the first wave of jewish um, immigrants from Germany. So they came for a co- from a country in Europe where they were already hugely liberal and assimilated. And then a lot of them did go to the South and they were very kind of like within the economy. Um, and then when the kind of the the quote unquote, and this is so pejorative, so I hate to even use the phrase, but the shtetl Jews come from East Europe and Russia um, and they are not assimilated in their countries at all. And then they come and they sort of um, sort of settle on the east coast and in New York that the German Jewish first wave really looked down on them and thought of them as basically embarrassing like if they had seen if they would see orthodox Jews in full regalia they would find that absolutely distasteful and that therefore yeah, that Bengelsdorf is- probably does have a very genuine mission that he does want them to assimilate because he feels that they aren't getting all of the American experience that they could if only they were less paranoid and would mix with people to yeah, me, so his, oh. Oh. well, I'm just saying, like his um, wave of J- Jewish immigrations comes from the Haskalah, which is like the ref- where, basic, like the Jewish Enlightenment, and so that's like where Reform Judaism was founded. So, like he really, and that Reform Judaism was founded on the idea, like you need to assimilate into society, like that's why we keep getting kicked out of places and yada yada yada. So, like he really is set in this idea, like complete 100% assimilation, like that's the way to go. Like this is what we like. This is why we come to America. Like the Haskalah is basically like we need to get rid of our old conservative ways. They're not working. Like they're causing people to hate us. And like so he really is in that belief that like they need to reform as much as part possible. But then the category error that I I mean I get why he would think that, although I don't think it's forgivable, but I would get why he would think that about the ultra orthodox Jews. But why would you think that about the residents of we we of like New Jersey who are they don't even keep a kosher they're just running they you know they're just participating in an American life like any other immigrant group just like the Irish just like the Italians like anyone else I mean like keeping Shabbos like they're still they're still doing things that other them and they live in these insulated communities still like I grew up in a very Jewish area like Jews travel in packs and so he wants to like separate them and get them you know integrated into all of American society like can you like their Jews aren't farmers Jews aren't you know yada 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 so he wants them to be American not like people who are continuously like living in the same communities but but what what does American mean exactly that's that's the whole that that was me shouting at the tv screen like we're all (laughs) fucking american motherfucker like you know that's what (laughs) i mean is not even an american i'm like the whole point of america is you can't you can come from anywhere and be american and you you bring your experience and you are not forced to become like some fake plastic version of a wasp to be american fuck you i was getting so angry there's always been the side of Right. you're not American unless you assimilate. Yeah. I mean, that going right. back to the, the original nativist movement in like the 1840s, like that's always been. Right. right. Whether, whether you're Jewish or Catholic, you're answering to someone else rather than the president or your government or, you know, America. But also the sects of Judaism are so segregated from one, like they not like hate each other. I but thought like, you were going in a total different direction. S-E-C-T-S, Matt? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Filthy mind, Matt. In in Judaism, like, when you think of, like, you know, like, Orthodox Jews, you know, they're wearing, like, the, like, shtimel or, like, whatever, and they got the, like, black coat and, like, the payas and everything. Like, most Jews, like, non-Orthodox Jews really look down on them. Whereas, like, I would say, like, a lot of, like, non-Jewish people are, like, whatever, these people exist. But, like, Reform Jews are, like, these people are shaming us. Like, they're, 
embarrassment. Like they're what people think bad things about Jews. And so like within Judaism, the different sects often have like a lot of issues with one another. So I can Oh, see yeah, yeah, yeah. We have that too, honestly. Like yes. I, I totally yeah. get this because my family are East African Asians. Why do we have this separate designation from Indians? Because East, the Indians who went to East Africa in the 1920s when the British owned East Africa have been assimilated and liberal and speaking English and living under English law for a century. So by the time they actually came to England in 1960, they slotted right in. They were more English than the English. And then you got the waves of immigrants coming direct from India in like the 60s and 70s and 80s, even to now. And they don't speak English and they don't understand rule of law. And it's kind of embarrassing because they have thick accents and they're working class where we're all educated. And the the language with which you hear East African Indians speaking about Indian Indians and the pejorative, oh, it's so appalling. And I was actually thinking to myself watching this, like, if this were to happen in England, how many, like, well-to-do assimilated rich East African Asians would be saying yeah I think all these kind of like Indian Indians freshies as they call them fresh off the boat it's so pejorative let's break them out of their yeah let's break them out of their little insular ghetto they wouldn't use the word ghetto but this little insular communities in Birmingham and Leeds and let's send them to why don't they all go and live in the villages and learn what it's like to be really English you could just see it happening in the words of Sinclair Lewis it couldn't happen here I think it could and again, it's just so clever to play off community versus community. And it's all about waves of immigration and how socially superior you feel within the context of social insecurity. Like you wouldn't care about that so much if if the, there wasn't a genuine insecurity as an immigrant. So it, well, really, what, it really translated to me. That's what they say, like, um, was the the majority like the rise of like Ku Klux Klan and stuff like that is because no matter what like you could be the poorest white man in the world but you could still look down on the slave like a slave or black person um and when that was taken away they had to lash out in some other way like I think it's just kind of human nature that you want to feel superior to something so you and separate yourself from them right so oh just because they speak with a heavy accent and broken english please don't don't forget that i went to an ivy league university and i'm your doctor and i'm professional right yeah it's it's exactly that bengalsdorf well he speaks 10 language and he rides a horse <laughs> where was he riding a horse in new york City? at least at least he's not a yankees fan right guys hey, hey what the fuck uh, John Turturro. He, re- I love how we've got. My, my point is, it's, it's just sort of transferred, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know, every time he spoke, I could just, I, all I could think of was the chicken commercial from BoJack Horseman. Like, <laughs> he sounds just like the guy that did the chicken commercial. And I checked IMDb and he was not the guy that did the chicken commercial. So, which is surprising because BoJack had so many celebrity cameos. It wouldn't have been surprising if he were. <laughs> No, he did the same accent as he did in uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Yeah. That was more of a savannah, more like molasses rolling off of your tongue. <laughs> Damn, Greg. That's quoting Michael Scott from The Office from Murder in Savannah. <laughs> you sounded like um, Shelby Fitt, the historian who's in... Um, oh, he's from Alabama. Oh, that yeah. would, uh, that, that's more his neck of the woods, not South Carolina. That's what I should do. With all my accents, I should be like, I'm just doing Michael Scott doing that accent. It's fine. <laughs> Well, I'm not sure we really need to spend much time talking about Philip, but do you guys want to talk about Sandy a little bit? Sandy was a real dick. Played by Caleb Malice. But is he a dick? I mean, like, 
I think it's hard for us to remember how Charles Lindbergh was really a boy's own hero. Yeah, well, they talk about well, that. You know, that guy on the porch is like, just remember, like we were all cheering Lindbergh twenty years ago when he, you know, crossed yeah. the Atlantic. Like, this he is America's sweetheart or hero. In defense of Sandy, I really, really appreciated when they were driving through Clan territory. And he just he saw the car and he just hopped into the back seat and was like, "Let me make this kid not have to look at his dead mom." And I was like. My heart goes out to you. You are a hero. Everything that you've done in the past is forgiven because you helped a child. And I, any character that is nice to a child automatically becomes the best character in my life. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. Like, I don't think I would have understood that when I was his age. Like, I would have been like, oh, cool. Look at the car. No, I I think Sandy, he gets old before his time, doesn't he? And I think the whole even volunteering to go on that journey is him trying to get redemption. He knows he's fucked up. And short of saying, as Herman says to his wife, I made a mistake. He, Sandy never says that, but by going on this journey, he's showing his family, I know, I know what I did. Yeah, it was the I don't of think he made a mistake. He was manipulated, basically. Like, I mean, he's young. He was like 15 by the end of the show. So he had to been like 13 you know, at the beginning. He's young. He's impressionable. Like, he was basically manipulated. They by didn't have the internet. Like, yeah, like, I just, I mean, I don't, I can't fault him. It's, it's the, like, and also it's just part of being a teenager. Like, my brother he literally would just disagree with anything my like when we were in high school he would just disagree with anything my parents said because my parents would push so hard for like their beliefs and so he would just just to be contrarian he'd be like uh actually no i don't think that that was that yeah, one too yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So i remember like, i remember the edge lords in high school being like you know jesus was gay and he slept with all the disciples like just yeah. just like you know at church group just to be like just to be a shit and yeah. people are like, how could you like, say that? And I'm like, they're fucking with you, dude. Just let it go. Yeah, like we were out to dinner with my parents once, like right after Trump got elected. And like, I think my, my brother was had to have been like 18 or 19. And he's like, he didn't vote. But he's like, uh, if I, and my parents were like just ranting about Trump. I mean, rather it was like, uh, if I had voted, I would have voted for Trump. And he, like, my parents just were like, what? And he's like, obviously <laughs> he just said that to like get a rise out of them. And so like, obviously Sandy's not trying to get a rise, but like. And then he put his just, sunglasses on. Yeah, of course. Like teenagers just want to be. <laughs> Lit a cigarette. Yeah. <laughs> Like they, they just, and but also though Sandy was manipulated by Evelyn. She was like, <clears throat> knowingly or not, she was basically like trying to turn him against his own parents. And but, so I, I, but I think I that's another case where Evelyn being older makes that more forgivable. Because I think Evelyn is a woman who doesn't have kids and her sister does. And it's kind of a way of bonding with them. Like she almost gets the son in Sandy, right? which I think Bessie's very quickly through, um, which makes it a little bit more forgivable forgivable to me. I think you're right. Oh, for sure. The the front half of this series, I think she definitely thinks Sandy's like her boy as much as Bess's boy. And she's doing a nice thing. Like she's going to a White House dinner. It's a huge privilege. And for genuinely, genuinely in her heart, her first question is, can I take my nephew? And it's not to try and impress people with him. She wants to have this nice thing for him. I genuinely think that was an earnest request. It's just, yeah, exactly. It's like, I feel, you know, it's like when you see videos of like the Westboro Baptist Church and you have, you see their little children like holding signs that they don't even know what it means. And it's like, you just feel bad for them. Like you don't think they're the little, the kids are bad people because they just, they don't know. And like, I think it's the same with Sandy is like, he just, he doesn't, he doesn't realize exactly what's happening. Mm. Yeah, I think, I think what kind of gets me, I mean, there are a couple of decisions in the show slash book that, don't sit well with me making Anne Murray Lindbergh the good 
person pisses me off. But the other thing that is, so Sandy does all this stuff, which is basically fairly horrific, but kind of he ends up back in sympathy with his family. And I kind of feel that with little Philip, like he does this one total kid thing, which is so understandable, which is, you know, I don't want to do that. Can't you send that annoying whiny kid from next door to do it? And then his punishment, because he really finds Selden annoying. And who wouldn't? Selden is fucking annoying. And then it's kind of like at the end of the show, at least, Selden is still living with him. And he kind of like creeps over to Philip and puts his arm around him for sympathy. And Philip just sits there and cries into his knees. And you think the punishment for Philip, poor Philip, who did this one thing wrong, is now he's stuck with Selden forever. I felt so yeah, bad. I, for thought, I, I, I thought that was actually. I thought that was Selden comforting Philip. Like I thought it was that w- when that happened, it was. Did you think that Philip wanted Selden to comfort him? No, no. I don't know. I thought that by the end, Philip kind of like understood he did a shitty thing. And... Oh no, he gets he did a shitty thing. He still doesn't want to hang out with him. Like I can get that I wronged you and still not want to hang out with you. And I think that whereas in the book, you know that at some point months later, Selden's going to get shipped off to his aunt in Brooklyn. The way the show ends is kind of like, that's it. They now have a third son living in that house and it's fucking Selden wish now. <laughs> but they talk about sending him to his aunt. So like, yeah, maybe he's got an aunt in Brooklyn. Yeah. Um, anyway, that was just something that tickled me. Um, do we want to talk about any of the political characters like Walter Winchell seen largely off screen, even Charles Lindbergh basically seen off screen. We see more of Anne Maura Lindbergh. How do you like that as a choice? How do you like the way in which they handle the politics? It was like four episodes before we saw the actor that played Lindbergh. Well, you see him start of episode two when Sandy goes to see the speech, but that's really like for two seconds. And then you see him at the end of that episode when Bengal Storff is endorsing him, but you never really see him more the wife isn't it in the white house one-on-one because once Lindbergh's got what he needs he just keeps a distance from the jew is isn't the uh, and they don't want us to the whole they point. don't want us to empathize with him oh maybe I, I thought the whole point of the show was to show this like one family's you know activities underneath with everything else outside you know happening so like even though yeah charles Lindbergh's a big driver of what's happening on the outside he's not actually you know directly involved with they, the they did address that on the podcast that like they were very strict that the only perspectives they could have as point of view was that the you know their family characters and then um alvin like that was it so if something didn't happen with when they were around it didn't it just didn't happen on screen i mean i thought it was effective because it really makes it a family story and you just see the impacts on everyday life like you don't need to spend time or a lot of time with Henry Ford being a dickhead. You just see the impact in that hotel in Washington, D.C. Like the chilling line when the hotel desk guy says, and we won't worry about the bar of soap that was taken as if they were thieves. And like, <laughs> you know, the you know, little you know details. How that was to me? Did, you, uh, did you guys ever read uh, Handmaid's Tale? When yes. she goes into the coffee shop and he's like, yeah. you fucking slut or whore or something like that. And it's just like, whoa, like, where did that come from? Like, you know, th- that takes a certain, you know, I, I get it. Like it, you're working a job, but you have to also believe in something to actively kick someone out of their hotel room and say yeah. something as off-putting as like, oh, we, w- we won't like get you for the missing bar of soap. Like that's, it was, oh, oh my God. Like, yeah, it's very upsetting. And wasn't there a little more in the book from what I remember of the um, the guy who gave them their tour, Mr. Was Anderson, I forget his name. Didn't we get some more backstory from him about how, why he had to leave his 
got kicked out of his like college professor job, or am I completely misremembering that? Yeah, no, you're right. I think you are correct. Yeah, Mr. Taylor. Mr. Taylor, yeah, because he was one of my. I just loved how he kind of defended them and like, you know, he was like the the good American who you try try to defend him a little bit from the the ignorance uh, people around him. But it's so chilling, like that whole episode in Washington. I was tense from start to finish because I was so invested in Bess by that side and really wanted. I was so angry with Herman of not taking them to Canada. And so even when they get lost and the policemen come up, I think, oh, my God, they're going to get beaten up by the police. No, but they do get to the hotel. And you're like, OK, oh fine. And then when the, the tour guide, I'm like, is he FBI? Because Alvin, yeah. you know, like what's going on? I was so nervous. And then he turns out to be the good guy. And even when they go to get Selden and they go to the, the Kentucky family and you think, oh, shit, are they going to when they drive off with Selden, are they going to immediately call the clan? Right. But no, they don't. Because actually the whole point about it couldn't, quote unquote, it couldn't happen here or these kinds of alt fictions is the majority of people can still be good if a motivated bunch of assholes want to take over the country. And it's yeah. important that you do see at different points that people are good. It's just that, you know, what can you do when a small bunch of people with arms and burning crosses take over? Something I thought was wild about the clan scenes was the fact that when that like, the store was burning, the police were just like chilling with the clan people. Like, yeah, like how you know, see the game. <laughs> Welcome on Friday, to the like, south. That's the tragedy of Herman. He's like, yeah, call the police. Fucking, and he's just like my dad would be, raised voice, tiny guy, try and be dominating. Call the police, motherfuckers. I've got, I've got rights. And the police are like, just move along here. Don't make a hassle. You know, we're not on your side. We're not on the side of little guy. Um. Ugh, it's so scary. I, f- I found this whole series so petrifying and it gave me nightmares. And we had to watch like light sort of normal TV afterwards before I could go to sleep because it was so effective. <clears throat> yeah, we call that the palate cleanser. Yeah, the, exactly. The Parks and Rec or The Office or Fort 30 Rock or something. that. So like, we would watch an know. episode on a Saturday night and then time it to finish for Match of the Day, which is like this iconic British like soccer discussion show. Oh, Jesus Christ. But there's no football matches happening at the moment. So they've just turned it into this like Zoom call between the presenters where they take the piss out of each other and show like comedy clips from soccer <laughs> past agents. And that's perfect. And that's then you go to bed and you kind of only semi have nightmares. Um, yeah. Well, that's one of the things like why I like alternate history and stories like this is that it's fun to have a, fa- a story about the South winning the Civil War or about, you know, alternate president. But it's the little things, like the little scenes, like you talked about, like the scene in the South or the scene at dinner, like that really can have power. And you couldn't have had those scenes if it wasn't in this like fake history. Mm. Um, a lot of history people, like people, like I've tried to recommend alternate history books to like customers of mine that are, oh, you're reading a history here. You might give this a shot. There, a lot of them are like, oh, I'm not going to read that. Like, well, why bother, you know? But I think there's something that can be taken out of it is. You can you can get you can be humanized more, and plus it's a cool story. Like I talked it's a about very it cool ago, story. Like, yeah. Like I call it getting like the alternate history chills. Like when I think of like what might have been. There's there's a quote by Dante Alighieri. Like look into my eyes. My name is my name is look. Oh, fuck, I can't quote now. Look into my eyes. My name is might have been. And there's a whole poem that comes after that. But like I just get chills thinking about that kind of stuff. About like it's called the Inferno. Yeah, I don't know. If, no, that's. <laughs> No, not Dante Alighieri. Dante Gabriel Rossetti. Apologies. Um, different Italian. But um, no, I, I just like this kind of stuff. And I feel like it gets 
looked down on by the literary folks sometimes. And there's been a lot of literary authors writing alternate history, you know, in the last decade or couple decades. And some of them have been great books, but some of them have um, feels like they're slumming it and they get back well, to writing regular stuff. Yeah, I feel like uh, George has actually commented on this on one of his blog posts, like where it's like, okay, so the Confederates won the war and the alternate history is everything's the same except we're flying Confederate flags. Yeah. And <laughs> it, it's, yeah, it, it can be, I, I think, a very cheap way out. But depends on the author. Harry Turtledove wrote a very brilliant 12 book series on if the South won the Civil War, but it was the next hundred years of history was the U.S. living alongside the, the Confederate States. Like it was literally a divided country and how that played out over World War One, where. Um, can, can we can we can we get back because there's one big issue we have yet to discuss which is the ending so to, for the reader the listener who has born with us through this and somehow miraculously hasn't Thank watched you. the show or the book what happens in the book is that having committed to the concept of writing the book just from the point of view of the little boy so only what's in his field of vision which david simon widens out to what is in the field of vision of the family you then in the book have this very weird sort of chapter penultimate chapter where it's all basically done in um the manner of news reports so you get this very compressed history so you know Lindbergh goes missing walter winchell runs against Lindbergh. winchell is assassinated Lindbergh goes to go and speak to the crowds he's lost in his plane henry ford and the real ultra nazis stage a coup um they imprison Anne Morrow Lindbergh in a mental asylum they arrest bengelsdorf and they really now are going to crack down on the jews hardcore um Anne Morrow Lindbergh gets out of prison um goes on the radio every hour on the hour calling for peace calling for the national guard to stand down calling for a new election and this is where the book and the TV show diverge. So in the in the book, the election is called, FDR wins, Pearl Harbor happens. And basically, America reconverges with its true history after this nightmare year or so. And so it almost feels like a fever dream that was solved by a man going missing. And it's almost unreal. Like, did the country really learn anything? And then you proceed as you were. Whereas in the show, and David Simon calculated that the show would be released in an election year, he didn't want to let the American viewing public off the hook. He wanted to leave them with the election and say, right, now you cast your ballot as if this election were as important Mm. as Henry Ford um, versus Mm. FDR. So that's why as we leave this show, you lean into the radio and you don't know who's going to win. And also, just to muddy the water, you've seen ballots being stolen. So is the election even fair? So that's a provocative ending. But you don't then have the comfort and the safety of America being restored to a glorious future. He leaves you ambiguous as to which way it could go. Okay. So, should we, we ask Matt first? Because Matt is the only one who has not read the book at all, right? Cause yeah. Us. So Matt, what did you think of the ending just from a... How pleased were you? Like, did you get understand it? Did you like it? I I understood it in the fact that I th- well, what I thought Evelyn was saying was true. So okay, I so, thought she was re- redoing like she was giving like the inside scoop of like a radio announcement that would happen later. It scared the shit out of me because it probably looks like we're going to depend on a lot of mail-in voting, a lot of paper voting, <laughs> uh, the United States this uh, election season. So seeing. It, ballots just set on fire was 
off-putting. I think that because of social distancing, there will be long lines to vote and people will be turned away for petty little clerical errors like there were uh, to the black folks in the show. It really scared the shit out of me. It, it was really a powerful ending. Um, I liked it because it was so powerful. I you know, obviously did not like how it made me feel. Did I answer your question? I feel like I just rambled. No, no that's, that's a good answer. I, I just think that shines a light on the fact that it was still a good show with a great ending, but the average viewer, no pun it, no insult intended, thought that the whole Lindbergh baby thing was real. <laughs> right? Mm. I did too. Yes. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I didn't think it was. I thought that's what they were proposing, which so, was confusing. You're saying it didn't do a good job. It did just, a, just, as, just as a confusing job as the book, I think. Mm. Yeah, they probably just shouldn't have included it, honestly, because well, I just thought it was reconfirming. Well, I, I think they must have thought that having the Canadians, um, you know, recruit Alvin and then having the newspaper and basically that was like mission accomplished. We're the ones that did this, not the Germans. I think they must have thought like that came through really clear. But like, it didn't because I they yeah. I was confused I because it seems like nothing happened. I didn't know if they were there to shoot him down, just to track him, just to like shoot I, a laser I beam at him. One of many people set up to do that. I got that. Right? Yeah, I got that, but I was like, he was there for two seconds. They were like, All right, we're here. Um five seconds later. Oh, time to go. <laughs> we're done. I think he was supposed to have been there like all night, but you know, it seemed like yeah, he turned it on and they were like, Oh, nope, we're good. <laughs> Well, like one of the things that they use for uh, airplanes for navigation, like especially in World War II for the bombing runs on England, were these like radio frequencies that would guide the bomber directly to the target. And what England was trying to do was scramble them or jam them or, you know, divert them so they'd bomb Isn't somewhere that else. Isn't the plot of that? Um, Abby, what did you think of the ending? Um, I thought it was handled much better than in the book, because in the book, like you said, it's just one final chapter that's like, this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Whereas in the show, even though it was all in one episode, it was a lot more gradual. And it because you had the advantage of seeing from different perspectives, it just kind of like, um, and maybe I can't think of the word, like exacerbated the intensity of the anti-Semitism. Because when I actually read the book, I was like, not that many bad things happened. Like, yeah, they got threatened with like relocation and stuff. But like, there wasn't that much. Like, I was like, oh, it's a blip in the radar. Whereas in the Even show, the journey to of... rescue Selden isn't that bad, right? Because they don't actually come into contact with the clan. The worst yeah, thing I about coming was... back is that the car just breaks down four time and the dad gets sepsis. Because yeah, the fight with that... Alvin's happened first, so he's got injuries that are still recovering. <laughs> no. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I thought that the, the show Whoa, handled it what? in a way that was, like, much more, uh, I don't know, just, like, much more realistic, maybe, or, like, just much more gripping and, like, made me feel more, I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, seeing Pittsburgh burning on the horizon was, uh, you yeah. know, puts it all into perspective. Um, mm. I, I just wished, because I went into the show going, okay, I'm finally going to get the ending of the book explained to me. <laughs> I left feeling exactly the same. Okay. Well, for all so of you out there who are like very angry about this. Listen I'm not angry. To- I was just saying <laughs> it was still a great show. You know, listen just, listen to the episode six podcast, the official HBO podcast, and then you will have some light, Sean. On I like how our podcast is like, just listen to this other podcast. Yeah, honestly. Listen to all these other podcasts <laughs> that explain this so much better. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, no. I mean, I, I completely agree with you, Abby. Like, when I read the book, especially coming off the show, I was shocked 
at the whole like what was the point of if you were going to then have all these like newspaper reports and showing us what was really happening in washington in the corridors of power why couldn't have we have seen that all along but if you were just going to make it family keep it family i just felt like philip roth kind of gave up chickened out didn't he had a he had a sort of you know george r and martin writer's block because he realized he'd written himself into a position where he couldn't really explain the coup from the point of view of the family and was like, fuck it, I'm just going to put in some like news reports and then have a big rescue of Selden that takes way too little time and isn't scary enough and then come home. Um, yeah, so I'm with you on that. And I think the ending to me is clear, but to me this really does seem like a Jamie Cersei having sex in the crypt scene where I think they thought they were doing one thing that was very clear and then they were not doing it. So <laughs> maybe it failed. HBO, goddamn you, why doesn't someone watch these shows? And give you a test like, screening. What do you mean that was a, that was a problem? It was, it was they, super clear. They need to get some yes, test like audiences. They they need to get some <laughs> test audiences. That HBO man. Um, yeah, and- I think I think they definitely could have made that clear if if that's what, what the intent was, um, and it wouldn't have been hard. Yeah, or maybe just drop it, like you say. Although I like it because I think it shows Evelyn being unhinged. The way she sort of conspiratorially whispers it, and you think, "Fucking hell, she's she's you know she's she's a Fruit Loop." That was my interpretation. Yeah, but she was on the inside of the. She was married to the. I don't know what his role was officially, but like she's at the White House. She's friends with the spokesperson or something. The Rasputin, the Jewish Rasputin. But then he was like, but like his job, his official position, I think, was like literally like the spokesperson for Lindbergh. He was like, wasn't he officially the head of the OAA? The office for the assimil- yeah. the whatever of the whatever American assimilation because he came up with just folks and Homestead forty two. So why right? was he giving all the press conferences? <laughs> because well, she asked him to. Didn't get is like why do people care so much? What the first? I don't mean this is like I'm a man. Like why was the first lady like? Shouldn't they be going to the vice president and the secretary of state like in the succession? Like why did she hold so much sway? Is it just because they were celebrities before well, they, he was elected? Like if she, if you know, yeah, and if if she was in, like imprisoned, they were like, oh, she's she's gone mental, and like no, even know, before kind of that, a, I mean, like why were they even? Why was the press hanging out Anne Morrill in just because it was her husband that was missing? I guess. Well, I suppose in those days, Eleanor Roosevelt was very sort of. She was one of the most powerful first ladies, wasn't yeah. she? So different times. I, I mean, bear in mind the Lindbergh. If if I'm trying to think if I'm remembering this correctly now from the book, I think the Lindbergh baby story is told to Evelyn, may or may not be via the rabbi, but from Anne Morrow Lindbergh. But I think it's just ass covering. Like her hus- her Nazi husband is dead and now she has to ask cover. Well, the other thing I couldn't understand is how could they not find the plane at all? It's the president of the United States. Like they would have found triangle. it. Yeah, over, over <laughs> the Blue Ridge Mountains, I guess. This is but, Carol yeah. Baskin all over again, okay? This is Carol Baskin's <laughs> husband all over again. <laughs> She put he put sardine uh, oil on his shoes or something. I tiger ate him. Done. And then you can argue: is, is this the narrow hips of George R. R. Martin? So should he have had the plane be downed and the body found? Like I, I think, in that final compressed chapter, he was trying to be too clever, and he has caused himself historical pain. And he's got the worst of all words right because the Word. the right wing people think that he has besmirched the reputation of Lindbergh and Lindbergh only ever went to Germany on behalf of the US government and he you know he wasn't really an anti-Semite and then people like me are like you're now basically giving white supremacists a cop-out of how Lindbergh wasn't really anti-Semitic you're giving him a get out of jail free card the narrow hips of George R. R. Martin is my favorite author fan fiction 
Was he flying like, to DC and Kentucky, right, and then flying back? Mm-hmm. He was flying his plane. He was flying the Spirit of St. Louis. Yeah, so it was I mean, like he an could. Old plane. No. He could easily have a plane. Could easily have gone down like in the mountainous region there and not be found. For I'm saying, a but long it's like time. the president of the United States. They would pull out every stop to like find the body and the plane. You know? No, um, yeah, they yeah. they would, but like with what they had at the time, like you know, they would assume a flight path. And if he, but if if you like, believe the Henry Ford. So what is the plot against America, right? Is the plot against America Limbo becoming elected or is it the coup by Burton K. Wheeler and Henry Ford? That's, that's if you, the whole point. If you believe that that is the plot against America, then they wouldn't find the plane because they have downed it not the Canadians or the British or Lindbergh and Axon. And they don't they don't want it to be discovered because then they'll be seen that they basically fucked around with the plane and had him down because they, they wanted to have America go into the war on the side of Hitler. They wanted to go beyond neutrality. So... They so got you're rid thinking of that it, it wasn't Canadians, it was Americans. See, I mean, this is too complicated. That can't be it. The plot against America is the fact that the, what makes more sense, that secondary plot within a plot in the last 20 pages of a book, or the fact that the Nazis elected a president. Like, that's the plot against America. It has to be. Otherwise, I'm a fucking idiot. And I may be an idiot, but it seems like Matt's an idiot with me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an idiot regardless, man. Well, if that is truly the case, which... <laughs> I don't think it. I don't think Philip Roth thinks it is. I think he's meant to put that out as a conspiracy theory. Then Roth I'm. But I'm very pissed off. Of the author. I'm pissed off. I'm pissed off. Well, but I, I thought the implication was that th- that they definitely helped Lindbergh get elected. I mean, that was it wasn't even really hidden, right? So. Yeah. I don't Guys, know how I gotta much thing. Bye. I mean, Bye, let's man. be clear. Let's be clear. It is not. You know, the, the Nazis can do plenty to help Limber get elected without stealing his baby and blackmailing him. Also, that would have been a very long game they were playing, because that was in what? That was like 10, 15 years earlier, right? I don't it's think so. It's like 1934, yeah. 35, oh, maybe. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, that, that doesn't necessarily mean they had the baby or whatever. I'm just saying, like, they, they definitely were working with him and working to get. Okay, I found the power. sentence. So the way it's described in the book. As an epilogue, Philip's aunt Evelyn confides the theory of Lindbergh's disappearance, the source for, for which was First Lady Anne Morrow, who disclosed it to Bengelsdorf shortly before she was um, removed from the White House. Philip admits that Aunt Evelyn's theory is the most far-fetched and, quote, unbelievable, but not necessarily the least convincing explanation for Lindbergh's disappearance. So basically, Philip Roth is leaving it open for us. Either you can be sensible and believe that Lindbergh was a Nazi, or if you want to kind of be an apologist, you can take this cop out, which is so ludicrous. I'm going to judge you for it. And I think Philip Roth see, and and I am shocked anyone has gone for that. See, I took it as Lindenberg was a Nazi and also he was being blackmailed by the Nazis. Say basically you are naturally a Nazi, like you're naturally a white supremacist and an anti-Semite, which he clearly was. And then basically the, the the Nazis say, by the way, we've got your kid. Wouldn't that make you not be a Nazi anymore? Because you'd be like, fucking hell, just give me my kid back. Don't be a dick, you know. I don't know. I mean, you just, you know, like, you just we're just going to raise him. He's we're, he's just going to be our ward. Yeah, he's a theon of the Germany. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. It's just a way to unite our great houses. All I would say is, Greg, have you read the book It Can't Happen Here by um, Sinclair Lewis? Yes. I'm just going to say that I, I'd be really interested to see how you think it compares to this one because they're kind of telling the same sort of alt history, but 
I feel it can't happen here is better thought through and is more faithful to the concept and doesn't launch any cockamamie conspiracy theories. It doesn't, but it has that same weird ending where it's like all the bad stuff happens, but then like they make it better. You know, it gets really bad really fast and then things get back to normal again um, or as close to normal as they can be. But no, I like that book much better because I didn't have I wasn't as confused by the end of it. Um, And there were a lot of scenes in this and from the book that were, you know, very reminiscent of, of that book also okay um <clears throat> but why what do you uh what do you what are your thoughts similar similar yeah. i mean it's not i think it's much better it's much it's much funnier it's much more satirical it's much more nakedly political it's not hamstrung by telling it all as a domestic story so you're just yeah. straight into the heart of things which i kind of prefer um, was that present what's the guy's name in that uh he had a really azaleas was was the president's name do you remember he had a funny name Oh, um, not Windrup, the one before. Cause Win- um... Yeah, Wind, Wind, Windrip. Windrip? 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 I think it was Windrip, yeah. Anyway. Welcome oh, to that's Greg it. Senator, Baz- Senator Bazelius Buzz Windrip. Bazelius Windrip, there we go. He can't be a Nazi. His name is Buzz Windrip. <laughs> I think um... that was supposed to be a book club that I did. And then I didn't do it. But so, if you, if you do that, I'll reread it. Because I think that, from memory, that was a great film. Uh, not film, great show. That should become a TV show. That would be really good. Yeah. Um, well, probably they're not ever going to do any more alternate history, uh, modern political stuff. Unless this spurns a whole new uh, interest in it. You know? I'm kind of braver to write that in 1935 when it was still happening rather than in 2004. Oh, yeah. Um, well, he was writing that. I mean, Sinclair Lewis wrote that because he thought Huey Long was going to be the next great, you know, um, danger to American society coming from the far left. And yeah. uh, turned. I mean, then he got assassinated, so it didn't happen. <laughs> uh. Oh, Christ alive. Okay. Well, we've lost Matt. We've lost Abby. Does anyone else have anything else to say about this, this shown film? I am so keen to hear from the listener. Listener, tell us what you thought about the ending, because have I got it right, or have Matt and Greg got it right? Mm. I'm pretty sure we're wrong, but I just don't want to feel... I just don't want to think of Tell us what here. happened. <laughs> tell us what Maybe we should run a poll. What do you think happens in the end? I think it is genuinely a failure, though, on the part of the author when it's so ambiguous, unless he thinks it should be that ambiguous. But Philip Roth, like, tell his strength is... happened by smashing the subscribe button. Yeah. Like just the thing about Philip Roth, like he is a you know a master of American modern literature, and his strength from the books couple that I've read and like his reputation is big ideas, big thing. Like he writes about sex and lust and like the modern American, you know, the modern man and his you know like so it's about the ideas. So he still got through a lot of that stuff in this book. If the plot didn't necessarily wasn't perfect, I guess. Like mm. you know, I, I love the human stain. I liked um, what's the other one he wrote uh, about polio um, nemesis, which was really great. Um, this book just he didn't stick the landing, but it's still like for a established author to be like, I'm going to write an alternate history novel. Like he probably got laughed out of his editor's room the first time he told him that. You see, until you guys was chatting about this on Skype, I didn't realize that alt history was this sort of like looked down upon subgenre. I thought it was perfectly respectable. How many like I also like didn't I also Postman, didn't realize so, right? that it was sci-fi. <laughs> I thought it was well, What just... is it if it's not sci-fi? It's not just fiction because uh, to me it's like what you know when fiction. you it's like when you write historical fiction, right, which is sort of based on history but imagined. I kind of <clears> felt it was more like uh, historical fiction or anti Maybe I've been reading fiction this whole time. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, I've I tried to get so. a lot of customers who I, read history to read like 
you know, uh, How Few Remain or even, you know, classics like uh, For Want of a Nail or Less Darkness Fall. And they're all like, oh, I don't want to read that. Like, just they want to read real history books. <laughs> Mm. And like Harry Tuttlelove is a grandmaster of science fiction. He's not a winner of the National Book Award. So. If you have any good, I'm I'm into the art history right now, especially 20th century art history. So if you have any good recommendations, Greg, send them over. Uh, have a lovely evening, boys and girls. We hope you enjoy the plot against America. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Obviously, listen to the far more professional HBO version. And oh yeah. We should probably end by saying that there's another alt history book called Pavan, which is oh. set in the English Civil War that Greg um, told That's me about. That's my favorite book. That's one of my oh. all-time favorites. Yes. Exactly. And it's set in the village or partly set in the village where my father-in-law lives. And it's really great. And I loved it. And Greg recommended it. So, Do not um, grieve for the deaths of stones. It's one of my favorite favorite yeah. lines from a book. And it so, only makes sense if you read the book. Who's, who's the author, <laughs> Greg, again, so we can recommend? Uh, Keith Roberts for that one. Yeah, Keith Roberts Pavan, P-A-V-A-N-E. You guys should check it out because that's really You awesome. can buy it on our website. We are our virtual bookstore is up and running. Southampton Sag Harborbooks.com. Free shipping. Within the United if States. To, if someone really wants a book in England, I'll make sure it gets <laughs> And what else what else do you have um on there? Like board games? What lockdown goodies do you have on that? Oh, we got everything. I mean you can buy we got five thousand books, toys, games, puzzles. Puzzles are selling like crazy. So uh, Do you anybody... have new Star Wars geeky Lego? Uh, we just got some new ones. We sold out of the Millennium Falcon, but we just got the little Mandalorians, which are nice. And we got a Poe Dameron X-Wing, which is pretty cool. So. Cool. Excellent. Well, check out Southampton Sidecog Harbor Vicks. Bye-bye. Stay safe and healthy. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Later.